Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. What are the aspects of your environment that we can actually design health into so that the healthy choice becomes a rational one? How do we build healthy living into our cities? Urban planners face a unique decision on whether to stick or change when it comes to how we design the places we live. Could the way of the world right now offer a chance to build in reduced vulnerability to disease and improve our health? On today's show, we speak to an urban epidemiologist calling for a global Marshall Plan to safeguard the future of fast-growing cities. We also visit the Upper West Side of New York to see how protecting the health of the homeless has been filling hotel beds and local opinion columns. That's all ahead right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Public health has been more in the public eye in 2020 than it has for decades, with infection data taking up space in most newspapers and lockdown diets and exercise routines looking very different to their pre-pandemic counterparts. It's hard not to be thinking about health at the current time. But what we don't often think about is how the way we feel is affected by how our cities are designed. Urban planners too, it seems, could stand to think a bit more about the way those two worlds interact. And that's exactly what my next guest is calling for. Dr Tallulah Oni is an urban epidemiologist and public health physician scientist at the University of Cambridge, and she joins me on the line now. Tallulah, thank you for coming on the programme. Now, you look at our urban environments and how they can impact our health not just in what health services are doing, but also how we can plan into our urban context better healthcare and better health outcomes. What are some of the things we perhaps don't notice from our day-to-day life in the city that nudge us towards a more healthy and holistic lifestyle? Well, firstly, let me acknowledge that I appreciate your correction of healthcare into health outcomes because there was a difference. I heard the correction. And the reason I'm recognizing that is because often when we talk about health, we invariably talk about disease and not about health. And so when we talk about health, we equate that with healthcare in the context of seeking healthcare. And healthcare is definitely a critical part of being healthy. But we know that the majority, the vast majority of factors that influence our health lie outside of healthcare. So in the healthcare context, we often talk about this in the context of prevention and behaviors and things that people need to do to be healthy. And whilst there is definitely a component of agency and individual choice, it is often overplayed. And in many cities, the lived experience is that these are not actual choices. So say, for example, if you are a doctor as I am, and you're speaking to patients, you know, advising them to eat better, and to be more physically active to lose weight, as I've done, without recognizing whether that is an easy choice to make, we miss a trick. So we often defer to that individual, here's all the things that you must do. We often have the missed opportunity around well, how can I make the healthy choice the easy choice for you? And what are the aspects of your environment that we can actually design health into so that the healthy choice becomes a rational one? 
So, for example, there you might look at you know, the provision of, I don't know, fresh fruit markets to make sure that they are spread across the city rather than just in one place or access even to good local neighbourhood stores that sell good food? Or would you be looking at the provision of things that would encourage us to be a little bit more healthy, so better wayfinding to make us walk, for example? Yeah, so it's across that spectrum. So if we take food, for example, one aspect, you know, there are different dimensions and ways that we can think about the food environment. One aspect of that access is the geographical distribution, so where they occur. And so where are the pockets of healthy food and are they evenly distributed? There are also access dimensions around affordability. So it does no good if it's next door to me if I can't afford it. There are access issues around accommodation. So if I have to commute long distances and I only get back into my neighborhood at 8 p.m. and everything healthy is open until 4 p.m. and everything unhealthy is open 24 hours, (laughs) right, then it doesn't matter that it's next door to me. So how do we think about all those different access components of food? But it's more than just the healthy food environment. We also have to look at the unhealthy food environment. So this is part of the broader system. Are we simultaneously putting a healthy food retail at the same time as not controlling or proliferating unhealthy, much cheaper foods? What are we doing in terms of advertising and the nudges and the marketing of unhealthy foods to people? Because these things make a huge difference in that element of choice. But you mentioned wayfinding as well. That's an important aspect as well. If we look at physical activity, it's somewhat irrational, actually, when you think about it. For me as a doctor to say, you know, you need to walk more if you live in a neighborhood where you don't have easy access to pedestrian-friendly streets or pavements or cycle lanes where walking or cycling is potentially a dangerous exercise. Why would I be asking you to do that and why would you actually take that advice? So in what ways can we ensure that the barriers to embracing those behaviours are taken down? And once you start having that discussion, you quickly see that, well, who would be doing that? It's not the NHS often, right? It's not the healthcare sector, certainly not solely the healthcare sector, who would need to engage the planners and the architects and the urban developers, etc. Now, when it comes to COVID-19, you've written a piece which caught our eye, which was for the World Economic Forum. This was about the need for rethinking urban planning to counter COVID-19 and to help protect our health. What sorts of things did you suddenly realise were needed if we are going to try and make urban environments that will protect us from this pandemic and maybe others down the line as well? It's less suddenly realised, more suddenly realised there was an opportunity to speak even louder what I'd been (laughs) speaking about for, for a while. And suddenly there was an audience and a willingness to engage with it, which is that if we look at the impacts of the pandemic, the risk of COVID and the stresses put on health, you know, relates to the risk of exposure to the disease, of vulnerability and of access to care. So if we look at each one of those and we think about the role of the urban environment in influencing that. So your risk of exposure is higher if you live in a home that is poorly ventilated and is overcrowded, if you work in a space or your transport is overcrowded and those ventilation issues. Your risk is higher if you're more vulnerable. Who do we know that's more vulnerable? Well, in addition to the elderly, we know that those with 
coexisting infections like respiratory diseases like asthma, other diseases like obesity, heart disease, and other lung diseases significantly increase the risk of severe disease or death. There is a paper just come out that shows that obesity increases the risk of death by up to 48%. I mean, that's just It's just incredible. So thinking about how the built environment impacts these, there's emerging evidence that those with long-term chronic air pollution exposure may be at also higher risk of both getting COVID and severe disease. If you already have asthma, we know that it worsens the existing disease. So you start realizing that I think the pandemic has made it clear that in order to fight the pandemic, we have to address those underlying factors that influence exposure and vulnerability. I should mention that in addition to those, there's also the added ability to be able to take on the public health measures. So we say shield if you're vulnerable, self-isolate or quarantine if you've been exposed or you're sick, hand washing, shelter in place. Your ability to actually do those is not just whether or not you believe the science, but it's also related to whether or not you live in conditions and in neighborhoods that make that possible. Now, a couple of things to pick up there. So I understand the need for clean air and most cities, especially in in a developed world context, are doing good work moving in that direction. But one of the the hiccups we've seen there is that people don't want to go on public transport. And one of the things that's been encouraged in many cities is actually if you've got a car, it's not a bad time to use it because you're on your own or you're just with your family, less likely that you would contract the virus. So is it a bit more complicated than saying, okay, everybody leave their car at home? Because actually for some people, the health outcome might be better if they do actually get in a car and start using that rather than a bus. So what you're highlighting is the complexity, right? Two things, the complexity and also the different timescales. So on one hand, we need to be clear when we're talking about interventions, what timelines we're talking about. And we need to be sure that we're not discounting future because, you know, the question that often comes up is, well, how can we think about the future and how can we future proof our cities in ways that mean the way this outbreak and epidemic has played out into a pandemic can be avoided? And the complex but easy answer to that is strengthening the resilience of cities, which relates to all of those different factors. So there is this tension to deal with. And in that particular example that you talk about, you'd need to think, well, are the only options getting in a bus or getting in a car? Are there alternatives to doing that? Can we think about are there active transport ways in terms of walking, running, cycling that we can put into place? Are there ways of saying, well, can we, in the context of where that may not be in the short term possible, can we ease the congestion of public transport by having some people work at home if they are able to, so that those who are using public transport, so it's less congested? Those are the different kind of systems approaches that you would need to take, rather than saying public transport is congested, so we need people out of there, and so if you've got a car, use it. And often the oversimplification can discount the future and places at greater risk in the long term. And obviously, we're dealing with this very present climate emergency that is not going anywhere. So we may feel like we're doing something now to reduce the risk of transmission. But if we're doing it in a way that accelerates a climate emergency, then we're doing ourselves a disservice. 
And just finally, tell me, you sound, thankfully, a very positive person and you're describing lots of really interesting things that could happen and should happen. Do you feel reasonably positive at this moment about the engagement that cities and urban planners and designers and architects can have to not just deal with this pandemic, but to make our cities more likely to trigger health than to trigger illness? So I think there's two things that drive my optimism. One is... One of the things that I've witnessed with this pandemic is a breakdown in the walls of impossibility that we put up around ourselves. You know, we're so used to working a particular way that any new ideas is like, oh, no, this is not how it's done. This is what we do. This is not how we work. This is what. And suddenly the disruption really across the board has shattered that framing. And so it really is upon us to take advantage and keep hold of that feeling that actually things that we thought were impossible or improbable or radical were things that are actually, you know, happened overnight. So that's one thing. And the second is taking a step back and reconsidering what the purpose of the city is. So we've got caught up in the fast pace of growth and development and building for building sake and we've lost sight to some extent of the advantages of cities and why people gravitate to cities and that fundamentally cities cannot thrive without a healthy population and so I'm hopeful that this really quite tragic disruption with the pandemic offers us the opportunity to take a step back as well and to say well are systems well calibrated to achieve what we would like to and if not Now that we know that anything is possible, how can we reset? And I'm encouraged by the number of people who have engaged very actively and the diversity of people that have engaged very actively in wanting to contribute to addressing COVID. And I would just implore urban planners and everyone in the built environment to think beyond COVID as well, because COVID did not cause a lot of these factors in society that we've seen. It's just amplified it. It just made it clear. And so I would implore all built environment professionals to, even beyond this acute and even chronic phase of COVID, to continue to engage with those health outcomes. Get to know what your health, the community health needs are in the population that you serve. And think about the ways in which the different environments that you have influence over impact on those health outcomes in the short term and the long term and hold yourselves accountable because we have to rethink the governance of health in the long term beyond healthcare to every single person who has an influence on the urban environment. Dr. Tallulah Oni, thank you for joining us here on The Urbanist. Up next, we look at one way that New York City is trying to look out for the health of its homeless population and how it's proving unsettling for some residents. Stay with us. One of the seemingly forgotten health challenges that cities are facing during the global pandemic is protecting their residents who are experiencing homelessness. Social distancing is impossible in conventional shelters, which means alternative accommodation needs to be found for people who normally rely on them. As New York City has found out, this task can be a daunting one. Monocle's New York correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan, reports.
There's about 58,700 people living in municipal shelters in New York. Back in April, the city moved thousands of them out of shelters and into hotels across the city to protect them from coronavirus. Stephen Levin is a New York City council member who advocated for this policy. He explained it to me and the rationale behind it. There was some disagreement about how the program was, was going to be implemented, and some of the uh, advocates that I worked very closely with were hoping that it would have gone further, but there was some resistance to that, both from the administration, providers, and, and some other council members. And so, you know, at the end of the day, what needed to get done got done, which is that people were, were moved out of congregate shelter, you know, uh, about 12,000 people were moved out of congregate shelter and into hotel rooms. Now, it just made a lot of sense. If you're looking back in April when we had thousands of new cases a day of COVID, you know, a thousand people or close to a few hundred people, maybe five or 600 people a day were dying in New York City or New York State of COVID. Uh, we needed to get people out of risky situations and risky environments. And the CDC, the, the federal CDC, actually went to shelters around the country. They went in Seattle and San Francisco and Boston and did a study on the spread of COVID, the undetected spread of COVID in shelters and found that, you know, in some shelters where there were only four or five identified cases, when they went and tested everybody, there were 40 or 50 cases. I think it was maybe 100 cases. It was a very risky environment, much like, as we know, any enclosed, not well-ventilated space, you know, that's, we know now that that's a risk. I mean, so even if they had moved the bed six feet apart, that's really not very safe as it pertains to COVID. So on top of that, FEMA, which is the federal government, had agreed to cover 70% of the costs of that relocation. On top of it, there were, you know, thousands and thousands of empty hotel rooms because uh, there's no tourism in New York City. So there was this opportunity, the, the price was, you know, was manageable. And the public safety and public health benefit was so obvious that I was a little disappointed it took them so long, but they did, they eventually did do the right thing. And, and I give them credit for doing it pretty quickly once they got in gear. There are critics of this policy, and it's not unusual for permanent residents to protest the relocation of shelter residents into their neighbourhoods. At the end of July, 283 homeless men were moved into the Lucerne, a hotel in Manhattan's wealthy Upper West Side. This move triggered a particularly swift and well-organised backlash, and also a backlash to the backlash among the area's permanent residents. While not a professional activist, Corinne Lowe found herself drawn into advocating for the new residents. So I am Corinne Lowe, the co-founder of the Upper West Side Open Hearts Initiative, which is kind of a loose collaboration between neighbors, residents of the Upper West Side, business owners on the Upper West Side, to try to welcome the temporary homeless shelters in our area and just see how we can be of help. We started hearing, you know, that there had been these temporary homeless shelters that were being placed in our area. And my first reaction to that was, oh, I want to see how I can help. But I think that wasn't really what fully galvanized us. I think what more galvanized us was that then suddenly at the same time as we were kind of thinking, oh, we want to see how we can help. Let's like start kind of looking into that. We started hearing a lot of really negative reactions 
from people in our community towards these temporary homeless shelters. So many of us were in sort of these like Facebook moms groups or Facebook community groups, and we started hearing all of this stuff. Oh my gosh, this is horrible. There are drug addicts, there are sex offenders. I'm not safe in this area. We need to, you know, bring in the police. We need to do this, we need to do that. And we were really shocked by that, especially because, you know, it was a lot of times accompanied by very dehumanizing rhetoric, you know, very strong, upsetting, and, you know, I would say even venturing towards racist rhetoric towards the residents of the shelters. It was often accompanied by pictures that were meant to inflame in some cases of very isolated incidents that may or may not have been shelter residents. You know, there's no way to say like, oh, it, you know, somebody saying, oh, I saw a needle, you know, on Broadway, but like, who knows, right? If that, it has anything to do with these temporary shelters. And then other times, you know, we would see a picture where they said, oh, this is a travesty. And what you would see would be, you know, four people just existing, sitting out in the benches in the median, you know, and what is the travesty? And so to us that, you know, really, spoke to potentially underlying prejudices if you know the fact that there's people who look different than what you're used to your neighbors looking like you know suddenly in your neighborhood you know makes you suddenly get all concerned about safety issues which really were for the most part imagined because the crime statistics showed that there was no increase in actual crime and so that our security was not actually at risk and then moreover you know this is frequently coming from people who sort of you know live in doorman buildings live a life that's very insulated from you know any of the real hardships that people have been through during the pandemic and so it it was very upsetting to see that you know there was such a strong reaction that we would describe as closed-hearted that what you when you see this need this visible need being brought into your area your reaction is to say, oh, we got to push that out. And we got to keep that away instead of saying, can I help, you know, from my position of privilege? New York Council member Stephen Levin again. A lot of communities are not welcoming to shelters. Frankly, it's not just the Upper West Side. Uh, we encounter that all the time. The city has usually has a process for citing a shelter that involves some level of community input but the community doesn't normally have a veto on it. And I'll be honest, when I first came into office in 2010 and they wanted to cite a very large shelter in, in my district, I initially opposed it. When they eventually got around to doing it, I had thought better of it and very thankful that, that I did because it's now, I live about five and a half blocks away. It's been here for seven years and I have two small children. I walk up and down the street. It's a 200 bed men's shelter. And I never think twice about it. And I never, it just never crosses my mind. And I feel safe in my community. So there's a lot of unwarranted prejudice against people who are homeless. And, you know, one case in point is that the situation on the Upper West Side recently, you know, there are people that are homeless on the Upper West Side anyway. And they may be sleeping in churches. They may be sleeping on the street. You know, we don't have uh, moats around neighborhoods in New York City. And so the idea that somehow these hundred men were affecting the quality of life in a neighborhood that's got about uh, 75 or 100,000 people doesn't really make sense. On Tuesday, September the 8th, it was announced that the men living in the Lucerne would be moved out into a different shelter, the Harmonia Hotel in Midtown. 
but this plan set off a chain reaction of displacement. Harmonia's residents would have to be moved into different shelters whose residents would themselves have to be moved. This would mean people with disabilities would be moved as well as children days before school was scheduled to begin. There were immediate protests against this policy, which culminated with a march on Gracie Mansion, the mayoral residence, on the night of Sunday, September the 13th. The very next day, the planned relocations were paused. As I record this on Tuesday, September the 15th, there's no firm plan about where the residents will be moved next, if at all. Here's Corinne Lowe again. I think, you know, what I want to say to the people who claim that they're so worried about their children and, you know, that that's the reason that they're opposing these shelters, I really ask them to look inside their hearts because if you are worried about your children, then imagine how difficult the current economic situation is for somebody who genuinely might not know where their next meal is coming from or who genuinely is exposed to economic insecurity and risk. All of us who are permanent residents of the Upper West Side have had the ability to insulate ourselves from the pandemic because we could stay inside our apartments, we could choose where we went. Residents of homeless shelters do not have that same autonomy over their physical location. And it was only you know, by DHS policy that they were able to get that safety and that insulation by being moved into these hotel shelters. So imagine that sense of your fate and your very protection from this deadly pandemic resting on the sort of political will to maintain that against this assault that's been oncoming from this movement to kick these shelters out, right? So I would just ask people to look inside their hearts and say, whatever sense of fear or discomfort I'm feeling, what an order of magnitude smaller it is than the fear or discomfort somebody is facing when they really are exposed to true risk and true danger. For Monocle 24 in New York, I'm Henry Rees Sheridan. And that's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. To play you out of this week's episode, here's Sam Evian with Health Machine. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Yeah.